Hey everybody, this is Kendall from Recording Lounge. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, this week's show is entitled Diary of a Live Session, where we are going to talk about a recent session I had that was done almost completely live uh, and sort of a common way to do things in the studio if you have the space and channels for it. And it's going to be really interesting. I hope you guys will learn a couple of things um, because we've it's a challenge to do these types of sessions. You need musicians that are really skilled. You need enough channels and preamps and whatnot to uh, to pull it off. And you got to make compromises. Everything's got to make uh, you, everything's got to be a compromise. And um, you have different challenges. So we're going to talk about the benefits and downfalls of recording live. We're also going to talk about some cool things we did. We're going to hear some samples from a really cool band. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Can we get a little bit of like less lighting in here? Make it a little yeah. bit more moody? Alright, let's dig in. Let's begin by digging in. One, two, three, four, one. <laughs> one, two, three, four, one. So this band that we've been recording is sort of a jazz, funk, soul, hip-hop fusion band with some rock elements. They're sort of a really interesting mix of everything. And it's uh, been a really interesting challenge, but the music is cool, and uh, I love challenges. So the first step when recording a live band is to first figure out what you're getting into. So like any project, you have to kind of figure out, okay, what genre are you? What instruments do you have? How many songs do you want to record? All of these things that were handled beforehand. So we come into the studio, and the first thing that we're doing is just loading in stuff. Guys are grabbing their drums. We got drummer who's bringing in cymbals and different snare drums. Guitar player's bringing his pedals and his amp and his guitars. Bass player, same thing. We got a lot. We got a a Rhodes piano, and we're bringing that in, which is heavy as hell and um, real bulky. And we have to figure out where we want to set everybody up. So. The guys obviously they wanted to do it live because of the uh, the just the natural feel of the band. It's it's a real um, big mixture of a lot of things, and some of the songs they want them you know really perfect to the click and really almost loop robotic type. But other songs they want kind of loose and and uh, some songs they even debated not using a click at all. But we ended up using a click for everything. But basically. Uh, the first day on a session like this is usually just setting up and getting tones. Um, and so it takes the longest to get the drums set up and to get all of them sounding like we want them to sound. And uh, so we started with the drums. We we did mess around with a couple other things just to you know, put them in a place. We had a drummer sort of off to the left. We had guitar off to the right. And this is from my view in the control room. And uh, they were in the far side of the room. And in front, uh, we had uh, the bass player and keys player, who is also the lead singer, the keys player is. And um, each, each member sort of gets their own quadrant of the room where, you know, nobody else crosses over into it. You know, guitar player has his sort of guitar corner with like a bunch of guitars and pedals and 
keys player has his pedals and his roads and all like that. You know, everybody gets their own uh, little headphone volume controller. We don't actually at, at my place we don't have uh, we don't have the uh, like individual personal mixers. Um, just the way I have it set up doesn't lend itself to that at this point. I think one day I would like to do that, but generally speaking, I've discovered that. Um, you know, those systems are, they're, well, they're quite expensive systems and they're great, but a lot of times, um, for most things people want, people need a mix created for them, um, because they don't exactly know what they need. Now it is really easy to have it on the fly, but uh, a lot of times I'll just start by making a mix for everybody and then they can tweak from there anyway. Um, so I, you know, at this point I don't have the, uh, I don't have the funds for, for the those a really nice you know monitor mixing system, and I would want to do it right. So uh, anyway, but um, so we just kind of roughly set everybody up, and then we started setting up drum mics. So for this session, we had sort of some compromises to make because we were recording live guitar, live roads, and live vocal and live bass, as well as live drums, and we also wanted to take a DI from the bass the guitar, and the roads before pedals. Um, just a straight-up DI. Now, bass wasn't using any pedals, but he was using an amp. And uh, guitar was using pedals, and because he had so many interesting sounds, we decided to actually take the DI after the pedals. Um, but on roads, we took the DI before the pedals. So... Uh, we we had to work through some of those challenges because we had we have a, a limited number of channels. I had a, a total number of eighteen channels to use. I'm uh, working on getting some more preamps and whatnot so I can fill up you know some more channels. But eighteen is uh, eighteen is usually unneeded for ninety percent of things you do. You know I can get drums in anywhere from five to fifteen. I mean, 15 being like a lot of drum mics, usually it settles around 12 or 14. And um, 90 percent of other things, you know, guitar, vocals, whatever, you don't need more than two to four. You know, usually it's one or two. And sometimes you need three, sometimes you need four. But most of the time it's just a few. And so it's hard sometimes to justify... You know, for you you guys listening, if, you, if you're not running a full-time studio, it's really hard to justify having 18 or 20 or 24 or 32 channels of pre's because how often do you really do live bands? Now, um, it I won't say that you will never need it because live recording is really cool and it gets a lot of stuff done in not that much time, provided that the band can do it. So these this band is full of really solid players, really cool music. Um, they've been well rehearsed. They're all just, I mean, they're all comfortable with being in a studio. None of it, you know, this is not their first rodeo for any of this. So they know what they're doing. So we started setting up drums with that in mind, that we need to use essentials and we need to make it sound as good as we can with as few mics as possible. So... We ended up being able to have quite a few mics on the drums, um, just the way it worked out. So me and my intern were uh, looking around and just sort of, uh, and also the producer, we were sitting around talking about, you know, what can we do? How, what, what do we need for sure? Obviously, we need close mics on the kick and the snare and the toms and the hi-hat. Um, but how many room mics do we want to do? How many overheads do we want to do? Uh, how many, you know, 
do we want to do two mics on the kick or two mics on the snare? Long story short, we ended up getting uh, snare top and bottom, kick in and out, rack tom, floor tom, hi-hat, mono room, stereo room, and two overheads. Now, this wasn't a stereo overhead. This was actually a condenser overhead, a condenser mono overhead, and a ribbon mono overhead. We wanted the drums to sound pretty retro and fat. Um, we wanted them to have a really cool sound, and uh, we didn't know which one we liked more. We definitely liked the ribbon overhead for its uh, fat, chunky sound, and we liked the condenser overhead for its clear, crisp snare. And some songs would lend itself to uh, to doing it that way. Other songs would uh, lend itself to doing it um, a little more fat and rock you know, big fat snare sound, that sort of retro sound. Um, so we needed at least those options. Now, um, some of you might be saying, you know, I can't believe you didn't do a stereo overhead. It's like, well, you know, you got to make compromises. But we do have a stereo room, and we do have tom mics that we can pan. And for the most part, we wanted the drums to sound um, pretty narrow anyway, uh, because there's going to be... You know, there, there's guitars, there's lots of guitar stuff, guitar layers, there's backing vocals, there's um, there's rapping, there's singing, there's, you know, sort of like harmony vocals, there's percussion stuff. So, you know, what you're going to hear today is just sort of bass tracks of what they recorded. Now, our goal, again, was to make it sound as good as possible on the way in, as it always should be. So we set up all our drum mics and uh, we started listening to stuff. We picked a couple different snares and a couple different hi-hats. Um, we ended up putting some tape on the ride cymbal because it was a little too washy. Putting just a single strip of gaff tape on the back will help deaden up a cymbal a little bit. Uh, make it a little shorter, make it a little less bright. And, um, and then we ended up doing uh, you know, some interesting taping uh, and, and, you know, taping gaff tape and, and little cotton balls on, onto the drums to get them to the desired deadness. We, again, we wanted sort of a retro, dead, fat sound, um, you know, funky, yet rocky. Um, and uh, that was difficult, but we were able to finally do it. It took us a while. It took us a good hour or so to tune and dampen the drums um, to really get exactly what we wanted. And then after we did that, we took samples of the whole kit. Now, we don't really foresee us needing many samples, but it's always a safe idea to take samples, especially on a live session. It's sort of the equivalent of a DI, you know, for a guitar player or a bass player. It's like just in case, you know, just in case, you know, their amp goes silent or they're, you know, or they're, they hate the tone later and you, and you need to reamp it. Um, just stuff like that. That's sort of the equivalent on drums is taking samples. It's like, you know what? If his snare, you know, detuned throughout the song and started to sound like crap, but the take was perfect, you know, you could sample replace like the last chorus or whatever happened uh, on the snare drum. Now, the difficult thing is this band has so much uh, funkiness and so much 
uh, ghost strokes on the snare that sampling would be hard. It would be really difficult to do um, to, to make sure that it sounded realistic. Uh, and so you'd have to kind of make some compromises, but again, um, samples are a good idea to have. So we took samples of the kick, the snare, and the two toms, and then uh, I think a couple crash samples and whatnot. But uh, for the most part, yeah, once we got the drums sounding where we wanted them, uh, that was pretty much that was pretty much it. Now after that, we uh, decided to start moving on to the other members of the band, of course. Naturally, that's what you seem to do. So we started uh, hooking up the bass. Now the bass, in this case, was pretty simple. Um, we had a, an amp, a little amp that had a direct out on it. And we had decided as a, as, a, you know, as a production team that the best thing to do would be to try to minimize as much sound in the room as possible other than drums. Um, again, that's always a challenge with live recording because you want isolation, but you also want you know, everybody to be in the same room. So we decided we were going to make it a priority to separate things from each other. Now, luckily, in this particular amp... Um, which was a little Mark Bass amp, uh, which actually sounded a lot better than I thought it would. The uh, there's a direct out of the amp, but there's also you can turn down, you know, the the amp in the room. Like in many amps, bass amps can do this, but uh, you you turn down the amp in the room and it still comes through the DI. You can adjust how much still goes to the output on the amp. Um, so you can get a little grit from the amp, but uh, we, we probably won't end up using a whole lot of it. What we'll probably end up doing is reamping our bass DI. But we wanted to have the amp in the room so that he could hear it in his headphones. That's another challenge, is you can just say, oh yeah, we'll just DI the guitars and then reamp them later. It's like, but they have to be able to hear something while they're playing, and it needs to be in zero latency. Uh, so the best thing to do is use a real amp. So when that's the case, it just makes the most sense to try to isolate the amp. Well, again, with the bass, we didn't have to do that. We just turned down the speaker and uh, in the room and were able to use the DI. So that was, uh, that was pretty easy. He's a great bass player, and for the most part, the bass tones on this record are pretty clean. They're just you know tight, funky, clean. So we were using a uh, Countryman Type 10 DI, I think. It's the silver one. And uh, we ran, that was for the bass DI, and that was run to an AML 1073, and which is my favorite of the 10s. Those in the BAEs are my favorite 1073 knockoffs. And we went to the Retro 176 compressor for the bass. And then on the amp, we just went straight from the amp into an API preamp, and didn't really need much compression. So that was it on the bass. So after that, we hooked up some guitars and let the guitarist try out some different amps. Now I've got a, a hefty wall of amps, and he had a he had one with him, and he had a guitar or two with him, and so he ended up trying going through a couple of guitar amps, a couple of guitar combinations, and eventually found uh, found one that he really liked. And he's got sort of a really interesting style. He's he's clean for most of the time, but with a tiny tiny bit of grit, just enough breakup. And he uses uh, a couple of specific pedals to really get an interesting sound 
out of his rig and it's something that's really signature to the band and it's uh, really neat to watch him play with those pedals I mean he he plays those pedals really well uh, he's got like this octave pedal that he plays a lot and it's really hard I, I've heard a lot of people play octave pedals and very few of them can make it sound as musical as this guy that I've ever heard in person and uh, really great player jazz influenced but definitely can rock He didn't like this particular amp, so he tried a different one. So after stopping and listening to each of these, uh, he would pick a different amp or different guitar, and he would come in the control room and listen to them, which is always a better idea in these cases to do after each person. So the drummer will play, and he'll come listen to it and hear. And then we record it because, you know, what's coming through live and what's coming through in the headphones and all that, it doesn't really matter in the end. It just matters how it sounds to the end user. And in the control room, they can really hear how it's actually coming across after the mics and after the compression and EQ and whatnot that we do live and really hear, hear it in full fidelity. So we did that for the drums, we did that for the bass, and we're doing that for the guitars. I think at this point, he uh, finally found the amp that he liked, amp and guitar. He ended up settling on one of my, one of my amps and one of my guitars. again, we wanted to try to isolate him as much as possible, so I actually didn't have a speaker cable that was long enough to handle moving the amp somewhere else, so I had to make one. Now luckily I keep a large stock of cable in the studio in case I have to make one, and often I need them. So I made a 50-foot uh, speaker cable, high-quality co- high 14-gauge uh, or 12-gauge, I don't remember, speaker cable, We were able to run his head in the room with him so he could tweak it. And then we ran the cab in the uh, the booth. So the booth uh, is, um, you know, double-walled and insulated and sealed and solid door, etc., etc. And that's over here uh, next to the control room. So we were able to isolate his cab uh, enough where he could still hear it just fine and it wasn't bothering us in the control room. And... Uh, He could still hear it plenty well in his headphones, and he liked how it sounded in his headphones, and we liked how it sounded in here. So, again, we recorded the guitar and listened back to it and just make sure it's working and uh, that he likes it. So that's important. So that was two people down. We had, you know, bass not in the room, and we had guitar not in the room. 
Now, the third challenge was the Rhodes. Now, the Rhodes is an extremely simple instrument in terms of its outputs and controls. This particular Rhodes basically had bass, treble, uh, volume, I think was it. Maybe not even that. And I don't think it even had tremolo. Uh, and so it, you basically, we went out of the Rhodes into a DI. I believe we used a radial DI. And... Uh, from there, we went to his pedals, from the throughput of the DI to his pedals. He had a tremolo pedal and a drive pedal and a delay. So we were uh, we ran through those and then went to an amp. He chose a deluxe reverb. And we needed another uh, cabinet to um, use. And uh, in the studio, I actually have an isolation cabinet that's up in the attic. And it's got a 57 on it. And it uh, comes down through the ceiling and goes into a preamp, a preset uh, preamp that I already have just for the isocab. And uh, the reason I chose to use that for the keys instead of the guitar is because the keys we know we're going to reamp. And he just wanted to get some of that grit live. He's like, but uh, he he knew that he didn't. We weren't going to keep that necessarily. Um, and especially because we wanted to do some editing on the keys and whatnot. And so I wanted the guitarist to feel, you know, like he got a choice. He got a, you know, a total choice of what he wanted to use in terms of amp and cab. And uh, the keyboard player was not very picky about it. So he was like, you know what, it sounds good to me. The cabinet's fine. Um, so again, because it's in the isolate, you know, it's up in the attic, we don't really have, it's not, there's not an easy way to like change mic position on the fly or change out the mic. It's pretty much just a 57 placed in a good spot. And, uh, and you know, you can't change the, the speakers out it, out on it or whatever. You can't change to a different cab. So we use that for the keys. And it ended up sounding pretty good. Um, it's a pretty simple setup. It, he pretty much, he doesn't even use a sustain pedal. Uh, he's just a great keyboard player with a, you know, straightforward sound. Now it's time to actually listen to everything in context. Again, we tried not to do too much crazy stuff without context. We definitely tried to get the drums to sound as good as possible. So um, on the drums, we ended up using, like I said, about 10 or 12 mics. And uh, I think maybe 10 or 11, I don't remember. And uh, we didn't do a ton of EQ. Uh, we added some low end on the snare, a little top end on the snare. We took away some top end uh, on the kick out. We did EQ the toms decently, um, a little bit of mids taken out, a little bit of low end added. Uh, we, let's see here, we ran, um, we did distort the bottom snare a little bit and take out some low end. On the preamp, we uh, just drove the input and pulled down the output a little and uh, took out some low end on the snare bottom. And uh, what I actually like to do is sum my snare top and snare bottom, as well as my kick in and kick out mics, to two individual channels. So I just have snare channel and kick channel. Uh, I EQ them both together and individually, and then I run, and, and again, uh, in this case, all I did on the snare bottom was take out some low end. Uh, let's see, on the kick input, I think I 
I've got my notes, but I, I basically just added a touch of low end on the kick inside. I pulled back a little top end on the kick out and added a little low end. Uh, I pulled out some mids on the kick out. And then I ran them both to a distressor, compressing just a couple dB, three or four. And then um, the snare, we ran to a BAE preamp for the top and then a UA preamp uh, for bottom. Again, driving the bottom one to get a little crunchy. And then just blended it in just enough and then summed the channels and ran it to another distressor. Uh, again, popping off somewhere between 1 and 6 dB in a really loud section, which is very seldom. Most of these songs are pretty steady, if not mellow. Um, there's only a couple songs that get real loud, and um, and so a couple of hits might, might have hit into 5 or 6 dB, but most of them were pretty much just um, just controlling, controlling a little bit, adding a little snap. Um, the... For the most part, that was most of our EQing. Uh, on the bass DI, we had a little bit of EQ. We added a little low end, took out a little top end, uh, added a little bit of mid range to the bass, and again we ran to a retro 176. Uh, for the room mics, the stereo room mic, uh, which is, was a stereo ribbon, an R88 from AEA, we ran to a pair of API EQs and a Smart C2 compressor. On the mono room mic, which was a Black Spade UM25C, we ran to a BAE preamp, added a little bit of low end, took out a little bit of top end, uh, and we ended up running that to a vintage LA3. I have an old Yuri LA3 that I love on room mic for whatever reason. Um, guitar, we ran to an undertone audio um, MPEQ preamp. And all we did was add a little bit of low end and take out a little bit of top end. Um, they wanted this record to sound real fat and warm, and uh, so that's what we did. And um, and it always sounds better to me to add some low end from the analog stuff than it does for a plug-in. Uh, it just it just seems to react better, and it seems to get you know real squishy and soft and 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 nice on on the bottom end. And uh, or you can dial it in to be a little tighter. So. I just like doing that. If I need to add a, you know, a dB or two here and there on certain pre's or whatever, I just like how it sounds. So, uh, yeah, that was most of what we did. We had a SM7 up for the vocalist to give cues. He wasn't going to sing a whole lot. He sang certain sections. But for the most part, he was just giving cues and sort of singing, you know, here and there to make sure people remembered where they were. And... Um, other than that, oh yeah, here's when here's an interesting part of this. We actually ran out of preamps. We ended up with 18, and I wanted to add a ribbon as a mono overhead as well, because I liked the uh, condenser on the mono overhead, which is about five feet away, just directly over the snare. So five feet away from the snare drum, making it about I don't know two to four, eh, two to three feet away from the cymbals but it's directly over the snare drum, right in the center of the kit there. And uh, I wanted to add a ribbon um, overhead, and I wanted it a little closer. I wanted something a little darker. So here's something interesting when it comes to uh, miking drums. If you run out of a preamp, and you don't, or you run out of preamps and you don't have another preamp, certain microphones, namely ribbons and actually all microphones, but primarily ribbons and tube mics 
and dynamic mics can be run without a preamp if you have a compressor um, with a hot output amp. So anything from Universal Audio, basically, um, has an incredibly hot output amplifier. Uh, and then uh, in this case, I ended up running a ribbon mic over the drums, fairly close to the drums, about a foot away from the ride cymbal, pointing at the snare, sort of on an angle. I wanted it to be a real close, sort of dark sound. And I ran that straight into a tube tech compressor with no preamp. And because the drums are loud, uh, it was plenty. It was plenty of volume for it. And uh, I had no problems. Now, the reason this doesn't work always for condenser mics, well, it works for tube condensers, but it doesn't work for solid-state condensers, is because you need phantom power. And so you can't just you know, run into a compressor and expect the phantom power to work. Uh, so you can get an external phantom power supply. Uh, you know, radial makes one, a bunch of people make them and you can just plug right into it. It gives the mic phantom power and then you can go into a compressor, uh, to boost the output as needed. Uh, in this case, I just used a ribbon and it works best with tube mics. I feel like because tube mics are really hot. Uh, so they generally, you know, uh, they generally don't uh, don't need a ton of help on the preamp end. Uh, they're very hot output mics. So that was most of our setup. And again, we took DIs for everything. You know, I think our hi-hat mic was an SM57. And uh, Tom mics were 414s. Snare mic was a Telefunken M80, top and bottom. Kick mics were a uh, MD421 Sennheiser on the inside and a Charter Oak E700 on the outside. Our guitar mic for our electric guitar, again, guitar mic, one mic, was a Charter Oak E700, which is my favorite mic for electric guitar. It's a condenser. you got to get used to it if you're not used to it, but it's amazing. And the, uh, let's see here, bass DI was a Countryman, I think I said that, and then the radial and then the guitar DI was some random radial or something. And again, that was just for safety. We probably won't ever need to touch it. Because what we ended up doing is saying, okay, guys, you know, let's just record. Let's see how everything's sounding. Um, you know, get in there, work on a song, and let's see what happens. And uh, we decided what we were trying to do is uh, record 12 songs and do a couple of takes of each. We had a, about a week booked out for this, for setup and recording and everything. Um, so we set up and heard everyone together. We did little tweaks here and there with the compressor and with the room mics. And then we set up getting mixes for everybody. And that was a little bit of a chore because um, I actually only had three headphone mixes available. I had switched some things around. And most of the time I only need two or three because the band members are like, ah, whatever, I don't care. Sometimes they'll all just share one mix or they'll share two mixes and uh, or they'll they'll share three. Sometimes I'd have a person in the control room here with me, like the keyboard player would want to be in here, so he wouldn't even need headphones. But in this particular case, they all wanted headphones, and they all wanted their own mix. So I had to make a couple cables and do a couple of tricky things, um, but I was able to get four separate mixes, and we just went through each channel, saying, you know, raise your hand if you need it. Um, and then put your hand down when you're good. So we'd say kick drum, and then you'd raise it up, 
everyone's raising their hand. You push it up. You know, oh, you see the drummer's hand drop. Okay, guitar player's hand drops. Okay, great. And you just do that for every single channel. And it takes a while. And you have to infinitely tweak it. You have to tweak it little by little between every take. You know, a bass player says, hey, you know, I need, uh, I need this... I need vocal down or I need guitar up or I need guitar panned or I need whatever. And so you have to be really uh, conscious of that. You have to be really, really dedicated to making sure that they have everything they need in their headphones, especially on a live session, because, I mean, it can really dictate how they play, how well they play. Um, We actually had a pair of headphones blow out. They were just driven too hot. They were the Sennheisers, which is unfortunate because I love those headphones. Um, but to get headphones that have a lot of low end, but also have a lot of isolation is really difficult. Um, and there's only a couple brands out there that I know that can really do it. And they're, you know, $300 headphones, $200 headphones. It's nice just to have, you know, the $100 Sennheiser headphones around. People like them. They're comfortable. They sound pretty good. Um, and I do have a couple of other sets that have more isolation, but, in the end, I really think musicians should just get in-ears. They're very, very effective, but they're extremely expensive. Uh, they have a ton of low-end, a lot of top-end. They're very clear, and they get great isolation. But again, it's they're you know 500 to 1,000 bucks, sometimes more. Uh, but they work really well. I've got a set, and I love them. So we set up mixes, and the band started to get ready to play their songs. So take a listen. Yeah, on the third one. And we'll all go hard on that last one. Jordan's jinxing us right now, guys. (laughs) This is going to be like six takes. Uh, It'll be like... Yeah, we'll all come in, but it'll be chill. Right. We'll do chill, two chill ones of the of the riff, and then I'll come in with the and just look at me for the change because I don't really have a set. But I think pretty much whenever we feel it, I think it's probably it's probably like sixteen or thirty-two bars of that. Can't remember. <clears throat> yeah, 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 whenever. Just give us a one, two, three, four. Yes. So for this record, we decided to use a click, and uh, that was a little difficult too because the bass player and the guitar player both felt really distracted by the click. So we put just enough click in there where they could hear it when there was nothing, when there was silence, so like the intro of a song, but uh, it wouldn't bother them throughout. As soon as the drums started playing, the click was completely gone. And um, so that that's one nice thing about having separate mixes is that we can put varying amounts of click because the drummer, for example, will want a lot, and the guitar player, for example, didn't want any. Um, and then the keys player wanted quite a bit, and the bass player wanted just a little bit. Now, again, you might be thinking bass player that doesn't want click you know what what, what's up with that but i mean whatever makes them play the best is important and i have to listen to that as as the engineer on this project i have to listen and say you know okay we need this and this we need this and this and you know we talk amongst the production team producers and whatnot and you know we say hey you know 
we're not going to make him play with a click if he's going to play better without it. And uh, so we put just a little bit in there. Again, there's lots of compromises that go on. Now, don't get me wrong. We actually went had a pretty smooth record-making process, and the band was really happy with it. They said, you know, wow, this is the smoothest recording session we've ever had. You know, we've had studios that have all kinds of problems, and, you know, things aren't quick. I know my rig very well, very, very well, and efficiency is the name of my game. I want things to go quick and smooth. I want people to get recording quick. And sure, there needs to be time to hang out and rest and take breaks and, you know, talk and laugh and have fun. But at the same time, I want to get the best sounds I can in the shortest amount of time possible. And so do they. They want to save money and they want to get their record done. So we didn't really have that many challenges other than a couple of minimal things. And we were able to make compromises. Everyone was really understanding because they, you know, they trusted me as an engineer and they trusted the production team. And they said, you know, we just want the best sound possible. So that is where you have to start making compromises and say things like, okay, well, you can't have your amp on in the room or, you know, you got to wear headphones or you got to, you know, we got to put click in there or whatever. Or we need to do this song to a click, even though you don't want to. Um, and we, you know, or we need, we need to speed it up. We need to slow it down. Uh, and again, I, I defer to the production team on those, those calls. Me as the engineer, I don't really make that many production calls unless they ask me, you know, what do you think? I want to hear your, you know, if you were producing this, what would you, what would you think would be the best call? Then I will tell them. But, uh, for the most part, my job is to back up the production team as the engineer and my intern's job is to back me up. If they ask him a question, it's always back up me. So we've talked about that in other shows, but this was a pretty uh, great session. It went really well. There are still going to be challenges in every live session that exists. I mean, every every time you pull up a live session and the band says, you know, okay, we want to do it live, a lot of questions should go through your head in terms of, okay, um, you know, and, and, and the discussion should be had with the band. You know, you realize that you can't edit a lot of this. You can't tune certain things. You can't, you know, you can overdub certain things if you have to, but it might lose some of the feel, uh, especially if you're not doing to a click. Overdubbing is really hard. Um, another thing is when guys play without a click, they often, you know, will hit the hi-hat in breaks rather than just having these clean breaks. And so you're always going to have these little counts uh, unless they just all look at each other and hit perfectly. Um, the, again, the editing is sort of limited. You can pull things from other takes or you'd have to overdub. And again, we, we probably only did anywhere from two to five takes on every song, um, about 30 minutes or an hour per song worth of, you know, work. And so, and the band gets tired after a certain number of songs and they start playing worse and, you know, they want to go home and they'd rather just sit there and listen to the songs and just, you know, just see how, how they did, if they need to improve. And you, you have to take breaks and you can't just force a band to do what they don't want to do with their own money. Um, now, the producers, the producers sort of have some say in that, obviously, but um, Again, you, you have to be very aware of everything at all times. You have to be really attentive. You know, how, how is everything sounding? The toms still sound good. Does the hi-hat still sound good? D does the kick still sound good? Has things changed? Is the snare, you know, in between takes while the band was listening to the their, their take, I would go into uh, the live room and just check all the drums, make sure we didn't have any loose lugs that had come undone, uh, make sure that cymbals and whatnot were still looking good, that nothing was cracked, that the mics hadn't moved. 
Um, I was checking pictures to to see if there's anything that has changed uh, while the band is listening. So you only get a couple of minutes, you know, anywhere from three to five minutes to to just go in the live room and check stuff and let the producer talk to the band, you know, uh, let them let them talk about it. Say, how does that take sound? What do you think of it? Um, we really tried to do this record like they would have done it back in the day. Um, we tried to do it live, at least for the most part live. Uh, we tried to listen to it a lot. We wanted the band to be very involved in listening to the takes. What can we improve? You know, okay, I don't like that bass part. I don't like that drum part. Uh, the drummer says, okay, no, I need to stop there with you rather than play a fill. The guitar player says, I don't like that tone. I need to, ch-. like, we wanted to be very aware of all of that because it it's a different way to make a record than so many records are made today, you know, individually, without context. And it's much easier to get a record sounding good fast um, by having bands that are capable of doing live because... My decision to EQ the kick is also based on how it sounds with the drum, with the bass and with the guitars. My decisions to EQ or compress a bass or a guitar or a vocal or a key part, um, could, you know, are, are based around how it sounds with the bass and drums or with the guitar and drums. Or so everything is interactive. You hear everything all at one time, and you can make really good decisions. And that's one of the reasons that uh, the track that you'll hear later in my opinion, sounds really good. And there's no, there's nothing on it in the box. I mean, what you're hearing is exactly what we heard when they were recording um, through the analog stuff. Now, again, there's slight bits of EQ here and there on some preamps, but nothing too wild. The biggest thing is just getting the right tones, you know, working with the right snare drum, getting the right players to play the right part, um, getting the right ride cymbal, getting the right bass for each song, getting, you know, we would change guitars and basses and try a P bass on this song and a jazz bass on this song. And, you know, we would try a hollow body on this song and uh, a jazz master and an SG and this amp and that amp and this, you know, all this stuff. We tried lots of things and the band can talk to each other in person, looking at each other saying, you know, let's do this instead. And they can they can argue and they can question and they can, uh, you know, make all these decisions on the fly. And, and it's 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 really refreshing because it's like we're all here. We're all in the moment. We're getting we're getting this record done. We're making music. This is it right now. It's not like this slow process where everyone's just kind of like, yeah, the drums sound good. And then you go and, you know, you get guitar or bass or whatever. And you're like, yeah, sounds good. And you have to just like slowly build this record without hearing how it's going to sound. And it's difficult for musicians, even though they don't think about it as much as they should, it's difficult for them to play as intensely as they should be playing when they don't hear everything, or they might play too intense. Um, they have to be very aware of the dynamics of the song um, to do that because they're just, you know, the guitar player might be playing to drums and and bass and that's it, or the bass player is just playing to drums and a scratch vocal, or drums and a scratch guitar and scratch vocal. But, uh, you know, these things affect how they play. And doing it live like this allows them to hear, you know, this is what we're all supposed to be playing at this point. There's also a little bit of pressure um, with live sessions that is not there in other sessions. Um, they, they feel like, you know, if you mess up, this take, you know, might might be rendered useless. Because, sure, we can overdub it or edit it, but 
What if your mess up causes somebody else to mess up or causes somebody to get distracted? Then their part's messed up. I mean, it's a slippery slope. So everyone's got to be on their A game. Everybody's got to be really in the zone. And you got to have a good production team that can keep them happy, you know, given, making sure that they're taking breaks, giving them water, making sure that the studio is accommodating them, that they got what they need in their headphone mix, that, you know, the lighting is right. Uh, just everything. I mean, they want to, they need to be comfortable and they need to be uh, on their on their A game performing the best that they possibly can. And if you can do it and the studio can handle it and the band can handle it, it's a really cool process. Uh, we were able to get 12 songs recorded in three days. Um, and then we spent the other two days doing overdubs of guitars and uh, some various things. We got some extra samples of snares and cymbals. We got some percussion stuff. And then we're coming back later to do guitars, uh, some more guitars, some more keys. Um, we're coming back to do reamping of keys and bass if need be on certain songs for, you know, some distortion on tones. Um, and we'll be doing uh, the lead vocals, backing vocals, the the rapping, uh, the samples and loops and stuff that we're going to put over this. There's still a lot left to do, but the point is our bass tracks are really solid, and we can we have a great foundation to work from. And the record is already sounding roughly like it will, and that helps everybody in the process. It helps the singers know okay, this part that I was singing before is, you know, not intense enough or, you know, the lyrics aren't going to work with this section or now that I'm hearing it like this, I need to, you know, this this keys part needs to be adjusted or this guitar overdub doesn't fit there anymore. The, the process is quick, it's fun, it's exciting, it's, you know, intense and uh, if you can do it, I, I urge you to try to do it um, sometime in your career because it's a lot of fun. Hope you guys have sort of enjoyed this, you know, little look into uh, into the band and and what it's like to record a, a live session, sort of the flow of it all. Um, if you have any questions about doing this, any challenges, you know, that you're facing that you need help with, please feel free to email me. Um, I uh, included a little bit of a song you guys can hear on the way out, and actually, I think it's the full song. Um, and again, this is just the bass tracks. We ended up adding some guitar overdubs, and we're, we still have a couple songs left to do on guitar overdubs. Uh, we ended up going back and adding some bass parts uh, here and there in, in terms of we would either take them from other takes or um, or uh, just re-record them. Again, we, we kept very good notes of all this stuff. We took pictures of amp settings and pedals and which bass we used on what and et cetera, et cetera. And you have to do that on a session like this because it, it, it can become really crowded really quick with lots of stuff and stuff gets confusing and, you know, you got four bass guitars in the room and five guitar, you know, electric guitars and ten different snare drums that you can choose from. Oh, crap, did he change, you know? And for the most part, we, uh, we, we kept really good record of everything. We took pictures of the preamps and the compressors and, um, you know, tried to document as much as we possibly could. Because if you need to come back and add a part or redo a part, you want to get the same sound. Uh, so what you're about to hear is actually the bass tracks, plus a couple of guitar overdubs, a couple of edits on, on things between various takes. Um, no scratch vocal. But um, 
this is actually unmixed. There is no plugin. There, there are no plugins on this whatsoever. Um, not even in this show. I didn't. I didn't do anything on it in this show. This is actually just the the raw sounds that we got after EQing and compressing in analog. This is uh, where we started, which uh, makes me happy. I'm, I'm really proud of the sounds, and um, it, it makes me feel good to record something and then, you know, be able to mix music that I like. Uh, which is you you don't always get to do you ha- sometimes you have to work with stuff that you don't like and in this case I really liked the music and uh, I was really proud of the sounds that we got I was really um, I was really pleased with my end and uh, listening back to it I just think wow this is gonna be pretty easy to mix because the sounds are great the players are great and um, so yeah sometimes you win you know and uh, I feel like this session we definitely won. And that's why I decided to do a podcast about it. And um, again, these are these are the sounds that we have direct into Nuendo uh, with no EQ or compression or uh, in the box. All of it was done on the way in. And um, yeah, so enjoy the music. If you have questions, email me at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com and check out the blog, recordinglounge.blogspot.com. I'm going to be posting some pictures uh, about this session here pretty soon. Uh, with some cool info and just you can see some of the stuff we used and um, we take pictures the pictures don't look necessarily great we always use flash when we're in the when we're documenting because it you know it allows for plenty of light and you can really see the settings clearly so um, you know but we got a couple of cool pictures and uh, I'll post them up on the blog and probably send them out through the email list. And again, if you want to sign up for our uh, mailing list, which again, I promise you I don't spam you. I mainly use it to uh, email you about new shows. Every now and then I'll, I'll post an article or something. But you can go to recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up. I believe that's the correct link. Um, or again, uh, if that doesn't work, you can email me. Please let me know. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Hope you guys have a good holiday season. Things have been nuts around here, which is why I didn't get a uh, show out last month. But um, around the end of the year, things always sort of come to a head and get crazy. Everyone wants to finish their project, and everyone's booking time. And I finally get time off at the end of the year. I take about two weeks off at the end of the year. It's about my only time off all year. I work um, I work pretty much seven days a week all, all year round. And uh, I take a couple days off at Thanksgiving, and I take two weeks off at Christmas, and that's about it for me. So I'm excited to have some time off. Uh, Hopefully I'll be able to even get in a podcast episode in my time off. It's something that uh, I can do on my own time because I don't have clients coming in, and it's just something I can do for fun. So hopefully I can do that. That's my goal, to get another podcast out before the end of the year. And uh, if I don't hear from you, though, I hope you guys have a great new year. And whatever you celebrate, I hope you have a great time celebrating it. So I'm Kendall, signing off for now, but hopefully we'll get one more show on before the end of the year. And uh, enjoy the music.